This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Visit Arizona, home to Nikki Cooley, who is the first licensed Navajo River guide in Grand Canyon National Park. I am from the Diné Navajo Nation, and I grew up with my grandparents on the dirt floor of a Hogan. I grew up riding horses, herding sheep, and raising corn and squash. Nikki began working in the Grand Canyon when she was 19, after a friend invited her to help out on a guided trip. And I fell in love with it. Um, Not just because it was very adventurous, but meeting the people who didn't know a lot about the Grand Canyon or Flagstaff or even the local tribes that were affiliated with this region. Nikki realized there was something uniquely powerful about the knowledge that Native people from the area could share with visitors. So she co-founded the Native American River Guide Training Program at Northern Arizona University. I realized there was a need for somebody somebody or even a program to help other Native Americans realize that this is actually a job that you can do. This is actually an opportunity that people should take. The program has since trained dozens of guides. We're helping tourists experience not only the beauty of the Grand Canyon, but its deep cultural history. As a Navajo woman who has been a commercial river guide and my professional work as a climate climate change, I guess, advocate, that all, that, that is who I am. I always have been that person who has been an outdoor enthusiast, who has always advocated for protection, preservation of the environment. And so when someone asks what I do, I always tie all of that into my story. To learn more about the splendor and powerful human stories of the Grand Canyon, go to unrealaz.com. That's unrealaz.com. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is The Outside Podcast. So this was supposed to be our last episode of 2019, but for complicated reasons, here we are in January. What it is the last of, though, is it's my last episode as the host of this podcast. Now, I'm not going far. One of the reasons I'm taking a step back is to work on big, long-term, deep-dive projects. And surely a lot of those are going to end up right here on the Outside Podcast. But overall, I am going to hand off things to all the other people that bring you this show. Robbie Carver, Mike Roberts, Stephanie Joyce, Alex Ward, and everyone at the magazine who feeds us story ideas for the podcast. They're not going anywhere. Making this show for the last four years has been incredible. I grew up reading outside and idolizing its columnists and contributors. I still can't believe that I got to do this for a job. That they said, make a show from scratch every week. It's been so much fun. But I idolized other kinds of writers and journalists, too. So it's time to move on. Over the years, this show has grown and changed, and there are a lot more of you now than there used to be. And seeing that growth, getting so many emails and tweets that say you like what we're doing here, that stuff matters, and I appreciate it. I mean, I've thought about some version of you every day for four years. And I just wanted you to know that and say thanks for coming along. It's meant a lot to me. It also means a lot that I get to end on this story about the Aurora Borealis, or Northern Lights, 
because it's based on the work of a good friend who wrote something beautiful. Do you know what causes the Aurora Borealis? Could you explain it to somebody else? If not, before you Google it, just sit with me here for a second and think about how crazy it is that if you've got your phone with you, you're about 15 seconds away from knowing exactly what causes the Aurora Borealis. Also, it is a completely brand new thing to not have to put up with not knowing something for more than a few seconds. But historically, these gaps in knowledge, the things we saw but couldn't explain, like shooting stars, solar eclipse, earthquakes, these kinds of things were huge open questions. Societies told stories, often about magic and sorcery, to try and explain them. And once a group of people had a story they could agree on, that's a culture. For cultures near the North and South Poles, the Aurora Borealis is that thing. Every culture has a myth or legend about the magic that brings you this incredible light show. And if you've ever seen the Aurora, it's so otherworldly that the magical explanation, deep down, kind of feels more true than the science. But writer David Woolman has been talking to scientists about the Aurora for his story in the January issue of Outside. And this is how scientists describe it. Aurora Borealis is caused by nonstop nuclear fusion on the sun. As these unimaginably huge and powerful events are happening all the time on the sun, they send charged particles out into space that come zooming toward Earth. Those electrons and protons will smash into oxygen, nitrogen, uh, and other molecules in the upper atmosphere. And those collisions uh, emit visible light. And it's usually this icy green, but there are reports of seeing lots of other colors. I certainly saw a lot of pink. Um, but it's really this kind of crystal ice, super cool uh, neon green. But David's story isn't about how the aurora works. His story is about photographer Hugo Sanchez, who describes the aurora this way. I would say, you know, it, it's just magical. It's, 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 the sky, it's the sky dancing. So it's like, there's nothing like it. It's, it, it's just unreal. Hugo is a custodian at an elementary school who takes photos of the aurora in his spare time. David is a contributing editor with Outside, so he's always kind of looking around for interesting people to write about. But he didn't start out looking to write about Hugo or the Aurora Borealis. When David started out, he was trying to write about Steve. I first got interested in it because of this Aurora-related phenomenon I was reading about that has been nicknamed Steve. And I can't remember what it stands for, but of course, a bunch of Canadians came up with it. Steve is a phenomenon that you can see in roughly the same places that you can see the Aurora Borealis. And to the average bystander, it kind of looks like Aurora. But to experts, or passionate amateurs, it's completely different. So different that its name comes from a scene in the animated film Over the Hedge, when a group of animals encounter something completely unknown. I would be a lot less afraid of it if I just knew what it was called. Let's call it Steve. Steve? It's a pretty name. Steve sounds nice. Yeah, I'm a lot less scared of Steve. 
it's very similar to Aurora, but it is definitely not Aurora. And it has this neat scientific backstory because as far as I understand, some citizen scientists or Aurora enthusiasts were spotting this phenomenon and making some kind of claims that it was not exactly Aurora, but it's still this neat lines or columns of visible light. Turns out Steve is the result of electrons entering the ionosphere, which creates friction and heat, causing particles in the atmosphere to glow. But back in 2016, no one knew that. Blah, blah, blah. There was some back and forth. I think they were poo-pooed by the scientific community. And then lo and behold, it turns out they're right. And it's this neat but slightly different thing. And that's not what this story is about at all. Not at all what this story is about. But this wonderful thing about journalism and story hunting. What the story is about is a photographer that David discovered when he started emailing with a NASA researcher. We got to talking a little bit about Steve. And what happened is... In a magazine article, in like like a popular science type magazine, I saw a picture of Steve, but it was actually a self-portrait of a guy dressed in like all white, in like a painter's suit, out in the snow with his tripod, shooting pictures of the Aurora and or Steve. And I thought, who the hell's that guy? Uh, I have. I always had crazy ideas. I call them crazy ideas, but it's that's that's the name that I give it. But uh, I had an idea one day. That guy was, of course, Hugo Sanchez, out taking this otherworldly photo of himself in what looked like kind of a spacesuit, with the aurora glowing all around him. And David thought to himself, "This guy might have a story." Hugo wasted no time, as far as telling me his life story and welcoming me into what I thought was an incredible story. Hugo's story, it turns out, is a story of why people go out on terrible, frigid nights to shoot pictures. And it has nothing to do with Steve or electrons in the ionosphere. Hugo was out there because the sky was dancing and he needed some magic. So Hugo Sanchez grew up uh, in San Salvador, in El Salvador's capital. And, you know, by his accounts, up until he was 10 or 11 or 12, he had a very happy childhood. Went to school, like, every day, and I and my parents were, like, married, and there is uh, seven brothers, and, and I'm number eight. You know, the family would buy our watermelon on the way to the beach on the weekend and um, come home with crab and fish, and he played soccer like every other kid. And then... From age 12 or so, and for the next decade, his life was really defined by the civil war that gripped the country. Since 19, so I had like a normal 10 years of my life, I should say, like kids, what kids do and all that stuff until like 1980. And that's when the civil war started in El Salvador. So that changed many things. You know, as Hugo told me as a kid, when you're 12 years old, at first he was more fascinated than frightened. You know, the fighting was pretty distant. And he told a little anecdote about going to visit his grandma and he and his cousins would sit on a hillside and watch the gunfire from helicopters and stuff on a distant mountain. You know, and it's this kind of peculiar image of Hugo looking up at the sky and sort of dazzled in a completely different way. As Hugo grew up, however, things kept getting worse. The fighting moved from distant hillsides to the streets outside his house. 
things were getting like as as I was getting older, they were getting tougher and tougher because uh like I say, you know, I did not want to be I'm against violence, right? So I never wanted to be um in the army. I I, I never wanted to be on like the guerrillas either, right? So at what point did you start thinking about leaving? So, so what happens is it, along the way, I found you know I was I was young, yeah, I was eighteen years old, but I found you know these 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 one girl you know like that I loved, and then we we had a kid, and um, we got married, we had a kid, and I was just eighteen years old. And, but we still didn't want to leave. And so at first, you know, they thought they could kind of ride it out, but then they knew of different people who were fleeing. And his wife's mother was already in Canada. And through their church, they started, once things just, were, the walls were closing in too much on him, he could tell that they had to get out of there. He was the end of 1989. So in 1990, we applied. And it wasn't like an overnight thing or rushing for the border. There's still like paperwork and medical exams and just everyday bureaucracy um, steps that are required before they could finally get residency in, in Canada. But then they flew, you know, 3,000 miles north to start a new life in Edmonton, Alberta. He was going in search of a better life for his daughter, but a better life for himself was going to be a stretch. Because at the time, he was basically a kid, starting over in a new country, without any connections or skills, or a firm grasp on the language. Even his wife's family, which is the whole reason they were in Canada, they were leaving them on their own. Like, the mom was here, the uncles, and and all all those people were here, but they were not being helpful. Well, we're new, we don't know this, we don't know that, we we don't know anything. So it's like, in a way, you need somebody to, you know, grab your hand and hold you and say, well, this is like this, this is like that. How long did it take to start to feel a little a little bit at home? Or has it ever happened, uh, you feel, at home in Edmonton? Well, you know, like, for me, it was different, right? I, I got used to, um, like, everything more than my ex-wife. Hugo says that as the provider for the family, he had to assimilate. It was a matter of survival, so he did it. His wife, he says, didn't adapt as well. After having, I had my daughter, right? Over the years, I have another son. And then, you know, like things between my ex-wife didn't go well. And we ended up like uh, breaking up and we got divorced, right? So uh, after like, you know, so many years living together... So it was the end of uh, my story with her. So now, you know, I was single for, you know, a few, you know, certain time. I can't remember, two years, three years, whatever it was. So I then I met uh, Emilio's mom. He meets a woman named Jamie, uh, and they fall in love. And um, about a year later, they have a son named Emilio. But unfortunately, right from birth, it's very clear that Emilio's uh, condition is incredibly serious. He was born with this 
kind of 10-car pileup of developmental disorders. Um, so he's rushed into emergency, emergency surgery right away uh, for surgery on his, uh, I think, his trachea and his abdomen. Uh, and through the, the following five months or so, he doesn't even leave the hospital for five months. Um, he endures more surgeries, and it becomes clear that he, you know, he will never walk or talk or eat independently. Um, his vision and his hearing are severely impaired. Just before we go any sort of further in time, I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit about Emilio. Um, like, uh, you know, what was he like? I mean, it sounds like he had profound developmental problems, but I guess what what are your memories of him? Well, you know, uh, he was he couldn't talk, right? He couldn't he couldn't talk, but he, he, but you could see these you could see this sweet little boy, like he was. It's not because he's my son, but he was. So handsome, like, like his hair, uh, uh, and and almost he wanted to. You could tell he wanted to communicate and and say something, but he couldn't. One of Hugo's really good friends, who also had a child with a similar condition. He told me that having having a child like this is like trying to tread water with an anchor around your neck. It's, it's, it's hard on the family. It's hard for the kids, for the other kids that you have, if you have any. It's hard for the wife. It's hard for the husband. It's hard for everybody. So, and, and we, couldn't, we couldn't cope with uh, Emilio's sickness and all that stuff. So we ended up breaking up. And Emilio had to go to live in a clinic. So Emilio goes to live in a place called Rosecrest. And it's difficult on both the parents, but I think for Hugo, it provided a little bit of an opportunity to to go back to living just a little. And at that time, or really by that time, Hugo had already really fallen in love with photography. I bought a camera. I'm not going to say I became a photographer. I bought a camera to take photos. He went out to a park, and in typical Canadian fashion, he started taking pictures of Canada geese. <laughs> and, um, um, and he even says it with a laugh, like, you know, typical stuff that any amateur photographer is, you know, icy. Yeah, you start walking around with a camera. Icy pond, birds flying, bird perching, yeah. goose geese swimming, whatever, just simple stuff. He kind of makes fun of his, his early years photography. So and then I'm, I'm, as I'm learning new things, I love taking photos at night. So I remember one day there was a meteor shower. So he goes out to try and take pictures of the meteor shower and he, he comes back, uploads his pictures, completely came up empty, nothing. But accidentally, he did capture the Aurora Borealis in one of these images, just faintly. So I took photos of the Northern Lights without knowing that I was taking photos. 
That was his first photo of the Aurora. But the moment that really changed everything came later. We'll be right back. Close your eyes and picture the state of Arizona. I bet you're envisioning the Grand Canyon, or maybe a cactus. Perhaps a sun-drenched desert landscape with some craggy buttes in the distance. All of that is there, of course, but it's hardly the full picture. Yes, Flagstaff, I think, is unique. It's a sky city. It sits 7,000 feet and above, and we're surrounded by ponderosa pine, aspen trees, uh, blue spruce, and amazing plants, um, species that grow here. And I always knew this is where I was going to grow old and, and watch my grandchildren grow up. This is Nikki Cooley, the pioneering Navajo river guide we heard from at the start of this episode. These days, Nikki lives in Flagstaff. And while she gets the appeal of the city's incredible restaurants and craft breweries, along with the hiking and mountain biking trails and ski slopes, for her, this is a special place because of its significance to the Navajo people. Yeah, here in Flagstaff, uh, we have Dog Oaslid, uh, the peaks, or as most people refer to it as San Francisco peaks. This is one of our four sacred mountains um, to the Navajo people, but also to other tribes. It's just so holy that I, when people ask me why is it important, I say, well, this is, this is my church. The, 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 envir- the land here, around here, is my church, but the mountain is kind of like, I guess, my, my chapel. Nikki doesn't guide river trips anymore. Today, she's a climate change program coordinator at Flagstaff's Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals. She works with local organizations as well as native groups all across the country to provide training, workshops, and conferences for tribal members who want to learn how to better manage their own natural resources. I think as a Navajo woman um, and a professional, I am trying to pass on a lot to the other generate to the next generations that are coming up behind me is that they have to have respect for people, for all living things, including the trees, the fish, the water species, the birds, and, and humans. Go to unrealaz.com to learn more about the adventure and beauty that can be had in and around Flagstaff. That's unrealaz.com. So before the break, Hugo Sanchez had gotten a camera and started taking photos of the aurora. But it had been on accident. He didn't really see the aurora until he was driving back to Edmonton from Calgary with Jamie, Amelia's mom. They'd split up, but were still on good terms. So we went there, but on the way back, we, we saw the most amazing northern lights. I never seen, I've seen so many auroras and so many shows, but I never seen nothing like it. It was just, oh, it was amazing. You could almost touch it. You, it, it was just incredible. You know, just, it was the light that went, I don't know. I, I don't know where it went, but it's in my heart, in my soul. I don't know. But he was like, wow, that's, that's, that's something that I want to see again. Like, I'm looking forward to see this again. And he's really hooked, like, right away by this idea. He gets online. He starts researching Aurora, learning about the science, takes out books from the library about taking pictures at night. 
I went and I started like looking, you know, for YouTube tutorials about Northern Lights and settings and all that stuff. But another reason why I'm doing Auroras, that's because Emilio is half native. Emilio's mom, Jamie, is Cree First Nations. And she told Hugo that in the Cree tradition, the Aurora is believed to be the spirits of dead ancestors dancing in the night sky. And this idea became even more important to their family when Emilio died. He was 10 years old. He loved watching TV. He was just, you know, there enjoying cartoons. And and, and actually, when he died, he was watching a movie. and He was watching Kung Fu Panda. And, uh, and he passed away. Like, I know... I build, I know about science. I know this now. I know the science behind it. I know why they're created and all that stuff. But as a belief, for me, that's that ancestor. It's Emilio dancing for me. After losing Emilio, Hugo missed his son, pretty bad. He wanted to feel closer to him, but how? Science couldn't much help with that question, but the Aurora could. On one of his first nights out taking photos after Emilio passed away, Hugo snapped a picture, and when he looked at it, he dropped to his knees. And I was crying. I was like crying. It's like, I can't believe it. And in that photo that I took, there is an angel in that photo. It was the Aurora dancing into the shape of an angel on his camera sensor. An angel that, I gotta say, kind of looks like a little boy. I only have one angel, right? You know, which is Emilio. It's like this little boy who craved attention in life still wanted it after life. And he got it. How much time do you would you say that you spend uh, photographing the Aurora? Well, you know, it's like I'm so in love with Aurora that if every day comes out, I would go every day. Um, So every time the sky is clear, I go. And after learning all this about Hugo, David Woolman decided he wanted to go too. So I wanted to see if we could go catch it together in Alaska. And... Outside editors said yes, which was great. They started their trip in Anchorage and actually caught a decent show of Northern Lights their first night out at an old mine. But it wasn't quite the magical display that made Hugo feel like Emilio was there with him. You know, he had mentioned to me sort of how he likes to talk to Emilio when he sees the Aurora. And I had asked him something to the effect of like, is this like the kind of time when you would talk to Emilio? And and he kind of looked and laughed. He's like, no, 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 this, this is nothing. Like, it has to be legit. David wanted to see Hugo in action, photographing the night sky and communing with the memory of his son. But a huge part of chasing Aurora is waiting around, doing nothing at all. The way it works with Aurora chasing is if you're working with a guide, uh, he or she will be watching the forecast and maybe 9.30 or 10 o'clock, give you a call or send you a text about like, 
it's dumping snow outside and it's supposed to snow another feet and you could never see the sky like at all. You should just go to bed and have a nice night and let's connect tomorrow. Or things are looking half decent, et cetera, right? They're going to give you their own kind of unvarnished assessment of whether it's worth it to take a shot. And Hugo was always wanting to go. I mean, his view was the only guarantee is that you're not going to see it if you don't get your ass out there. You can think of Hugo's story as a beautiful tribute to his son. He braves the cold and skips whole nights of sleep because the aurora makes him feel close to him again. But when David got to Alaska, there was more to it than that. He always wanted, he, was, he wasn't just game for aurora, he was game for anything. Like, should we ride the tram at that ski area just to do it? Sure, let's, let's go do it. You know, you want to ride old snowmobiles? And yes, let's, let's go do it. And there's this hot springs place. Oh, yeah, I love hot springs. Because you kind of have a lot of time to kill during the day. And, and I should add, you know. So when, when David was describing this trip, he told me that you're always up for anything. You're, you're just palpably having fun and enjoying yourself. And I guess I just wonder where that comes from. Photography, it cleans my soul, right? So all the problems, all the pains, all all the sorrow, it's there. Like, you know, it's, it's a way out. It's like, I don't want to have this weight. So I need to find a way to get it out. And by me, like doing photography, me doing all these things, like I'm like transforming all the bad stuff, all the bad vibes, all the all the negativity and all the hard times and, and the struggles, I'm trying to, I'm making them in a good way. Hmm. And are you saying that the fact that you can go do this photography and, and sort of, you know, clean, clean your soul, as you say, are you saying that leaves you open to these experiences? Or are you saying these experiences are part of are part of the kind of cleansing and getting rid of the of the bad vibes. Yes, I I would say both because um, at the same time I'm 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 cleaning I'm like I'm trying to be happy. Let's say I'm trying to be happy. I'm trying to be uh, not to think about something that I can't change. Uh, at the same time, I'm looking for an opportunity to to. To, to do better, I, I, I want to show, because I also want to show the people that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It's like you can make it better, right? Because uh, I'm not going to cry and, 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 and instead of me crying, I'm going to go and, and do something positive out of something negative. Almost like you're turning tears of sadness into tears of joy when you do cry. Right. It was about a week into the trip, near an old mining town called Weissman, that Emilio finally showed up. So we're there waiting, we're kind of walking around, and then I'm, I'm, my eyes are in the sky. David is like, you know, talking to a person, he's getting info, but my eyes are in the sky. And as soon as I see the aurora one point that is coming out, I was like, oh, here it is. Yeah. Look at that. 
Feel like that. Oh my gosh. Eat your heart out, rainbows. See, remember I said no maybe? I said we will. Look. Here goes the Aurora Whisperer. Now I can talk. Like, that's why I always told you. What's that? I said that's that's what I told you. What? That what? Now that I can, now I can talk. Oh, uh, now you can say it. Yes. <laughs> now I can say, you know, I'm happy to see you, Emilio. Miss you, buddy. You know I love you. Mom loves you too, so. Thanks for everything you're doing lately, so. Big hugs, big kisses. I love you, buddy. Hugo Sanchez in conversation with his son, Emilio. Those are coming out nicely. The story was written and produced by me, Peter Frickwright, and David Woolman. Based on the article, The Man Who Chases Auroras to Push Away Darkness. You can find it on Outside Online, with some incredible Aurora photos by Hugo. Music, as always, by Robbie Carver. Michael Roberts is our executive editor. This episode is brought to you by Visit Arizona, home to incredible natural splendor and powerful human stories. Learn more at unrealaz.com. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Integrated Media. That's it for me. We'll be back soon.